as I said last week, he didn't cover them for the purpose of teaching us about the furnishings of the tabernacle or the tabernacle itself. But his point was to show that only the priests would enter the, could enter the holy place or room one. And then in the Holy of Holies or the second room, only the high priest. And then only once a year on Yom Kippur. So what he's, the point he's trying to make is the people really had no access to God except through a mediator, the priests. And he's taking us through all of this to show us that Yeshua is a new and better mediator of a new and better covenant. So I have to ask yourself, who was the mediator of the first covenant? Well, the rabbis put their opinion forth in, in, in Perkei Avot. They say this, Moses received the Torah from God at Mount Sinai and conveyed it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly. And they said three things, be deliberate in judgment, develop many disciples, and make a protective fence around the Torah. The rabbis would like to say that they're the inheritors of this responsibility. And Yeshua tells us something similar in Matthew. He says that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. However, he also tells us in the same verse that that was problematic. There's a reason that it's problematic. Remember, the author is following the Torah very closely. And if we look at the Torah, we find who really should mediate the covenant. Well, the truth is that the, prophet, uh, the priests were the true mediators of the covenant. The high priest was the one who offered intercession for the people. And if we read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13, it says, So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years for... In the year of canceling debts, during the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, the aliens living in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it, and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And the thing that I want you to see is that the priests were to be the teachers of the law. They were to be the teachers of the law as well as, the media, as those who offered up the intercession, the prayers for Israel. And I bring this up because he's leading us through this tabernacle to speak of Messiah's offering as high priest being superior and therefore he's the new mediator of this new covenant. Now you might think that's a small point, a small thing, but it's not. Because when you get outside of God's plan, just like Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua says the Pharisees being in Moses' seat was problematic. When you get outside of God's plan, it's always problematic. So let's begin with verse 11. And it says, But when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 
We have this, we, we've looked at this verse in previous lessons. It says Messiah appeared as high priest of the good things to come. Some versions of the Bible, maybe your version if you're looking at it, may say already here. And there's a reason for this. It's because the ancient manuscripts, some of them said to come, others said already here. And you hear commentators will make a huge point of this saying, because it says to come, that means that what Messiah secured for us is really a future thing. And then on the other hand, those who, who insist that it has come say that it's because the Torah and the law, the old covenant is no longer valid. And the fact is that both of those interpretations miss the author's intent. First, what Messiah secured for those who believe is for today and for the kingdom. You see, the rendering has come makes sense in that he's trying to encourage the audience to hold on. As some may be on the verge of denying Messiah, all this because of persecution being brought upon them by the priests and the temple authorities. So he's explaining to them what Messiah did for us is so far superior to the temple and what the priests can secure. And then the rendering to come makes sense as well because while what Messiah accomplished for us, this strengthening that we have and this empowering that he has given us for today, there's so much more to come. As wonderful as this strengthening and empowering is, it's but a foretaste of what he's secured for us in the future. And we'll look at that in a little while. And this should be clear to all because he says he has entered to a, to, into a greater, more perfect tabernacle. He's there. He's already secured for us. Redemption, it's done. We do have the power to overcome. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Yeshua to be revealed. He will keep you strong till the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. God has called you into fellowship with his son, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. He's faithful. And then in Romans, he tells us this in chapter 8, verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for our, redemption, for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. So, the point is this, getting wound up, on these, wound up in these types of arguments really causes us to miss the point. And the point is that Messiah has secured for us today the power to overcome. As the author says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden his, your heart as they did in the rebellion, right? And there's even greater riches to come in the kingdom that's coming. Amen? The author will tell us now how this is all done. He says in verse 12, not only through the, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, 
He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The author shows once again his premise and indeed the truth that the sacrifices and the whole of the law were a shadow, are a shadow, equating Messiah's offering to that of the tabernacle offerings, superior to those offerings that he is. He says he entered past tense the Holy of Holies once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for all who will put their trust in him. And I can't emphasize this enough as we go through this book because the author wants us to know that this is a done deal. You can count on it, you can stand on it, you can operate in it. And he's going to continue to show this as we go on through the book of Hebrews. And next he's going to use the homer argument to uh, show Messiah's superiority. He says in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctifying for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, if the blood of goats and bulls, referring to Yom Kippur, where there was a bull and two goats offered for, for the sins of the house of Aaron and the house of Israel. And, the, you know, curiously, he adds the ashes of a red heifer. All of these for the cleansing of the flesh. Well, the text of the Torah regarding the red heifer does not say for the purification of sins. It specifically stipulates those who have been made unclean by touching a corpse. And he uses this more than likely to show how complete the offering of Yeshua was. Total redemption. Total purification. You think of coming into contact with a corpse. It's one of those rare Torah commands that's not so much a transgression. It's not a transgression against man or a transgression against God. It's God telling us that coming in contact with death renders you unclean, and the why is simple. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. In much the same way, the monthly flow of blood experienced by a woman renders her unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. In the body, the blood is the life. But out of the body, not so much. So these things are for the cleansing of the flesh, he says. And he says, Messiah without blemish. Messiah was without blemish. A term that we find in the Torah, in the Greek here, it's the word amomos, and it means faultless and unblameable. And it's Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent is tamim. It means undefiled, upright, and whole. This term without blemish, of course, is something that we find used over and over in connection with the offerings. The offerings presented to God were to be without blemish. And it's the opposite of tamay. Tamay means unclean, impure. And so we learn in the commentary, we learned in the commentary what happens to that that is unclean. It's unable to enter into the presence of God. It's burned. What, those things that are unclean are burned. So this is, a sh- this is the shadow God wanted to convey. That a life without blemish 
meaning undefiled, upright, could be offered in the stead of another who was unclean or defiled and impure, rendering that which was unclean and unable to be in God's presence clean and able to serve the living God. And so what we learn here is that the offerings in some measure did cleanse the offerer. The offerings were a means of cleansing or returning ritual purity to the flesh. However, the author wants us to know that they did nothing for the conscience. The author said in verse 9, this is an illustration, and that's that word parabolic again, this is a parable for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And so the Spirit of God gave us a parable for the present time, and the parable is the sacrifices... The meaning of the parable is the sacrifices cleanse the flesh, but not the conscience. Because it was a parable, it was a teaching of the offering that could clear the conscience. Did you ever consider this word conscience? Well, if we look at the word conscience in the Greek, it's sunadesis, which comes from the root word sunadu. It means to see completely, to understand, to become aware. In other words, the offerings were able to make the flesh pure, but they were unable to make you fully aware. What does all of this mean? Well, we can look at it in this way. It's like the person that transgresses against another person. And when confronted with their transgression, they say, oh, I'm sorry. However, he goes out and does the same thing over again, right? And he may, while he may mean, while he may have been sorry at the moment, that sorrow did not make him fully aware of the magnitude of what he had done, and so he was prone to go out and do it again and again. Until such time he becomes fully aware of the transgression. And we see this time and time again in people who are out of control by some substance. You know, drunk drivers are really sorrowful when they get caught. And as they're serving their time, but then they get out and go do it again, right? So, last week in connection with the sin offering, I said that a rabbi that I once read said the offerer, as he looked at the life of the sin offering and with his own hands took the life of that sin offering, he would become aware of the consequences of his action and should go out and sin no more. He would see the life of a pure and innocent animal, unblemished, had to be taken for his transgression, and that should make him go and sin no more. Well, that was a wonderful insight by the rabbi, but the author of Hebrews is actually saying not so much. The author is saying that the blood of goats and bulls did not do that. They did not cleanse the conscience. They did not make you fully aware of the consequences. The author, then the author uses the same terms in describing Messiah that he offered his own life, his own blood. 
He was undefiled in every way, upright, faultless, perfect. In other words, Messiah was one who could stand before God face to face. He had no impurity. And he wasn't a goat or a bull that you can go out and buy and then go to the, take it to the temple and offer. He's the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Pure, holy, blameless. So his offering is able to cleanse the conscience. His offering is make, able to make you fully aware. Let me put it this way. While the rabbi's words of seeing the consequences of his action and going away and sin no more is a beautiful sentiment, the fact is that one could go to the temple and offer a sin offering and it cleansed his flesh. And no matter, he could go out the next day, do the same thing, and come back and purchase another sin offering and cleanse his flesh again. He never realized the consequences of what he did. What he learned is nothing except, I'm going to go broke if I keep on doing this. On the other hand, I have never seen anyone confronted with their sin at the point of salvation and convicted by the spirit of the living God of their sin that was not reduced to weeping when confronted with the consequences of that sin. Messiah's death. And then at the same time, at the same instance, realizing the magnitude of God's forgiveness. I know that when I became aware, I was reduced to a puddle of tears, wailing over what I had done and what my actions had caused. And with that in mind, look at the words of John in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And in him is no sin. And no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen or known him. You see, the point he's making is that one who has had his conscience one who has been made fully aware of the consequences of his actions will go out and sin no more. And if he does go out and sin over and over again, then there's no way that he's come face to face with his actions. He's not aware of what his actions have done. But again, not just that. As you come face to face with the consequences of your actions, You'll also come face to face with the magnitude of the compassion, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God and Messiah. The Spirit of God makes you aware of these things. And as you go away, aware, you go away secure in the kindness and the mercy of God. You go away with a conscience that is cleared before God. You know, a lot of times I speak with people and they often... And they often People who often feel, oh, what, what I did was so bad that I can't be forgiven. You know, the adversary would love to have you feel that way. And we'll get to why in a moment. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey. He's saying to you, it's a done deal. Messiah has that compassion. He has that forgiveness. You know, as an interesting aside, before we continue, I just want to bring this up that we have a rare instance here of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being mentioned in the same verses. It says, He was through the Spirit of God, offered Himself, who was without blemish, to God, or we could say the Father. 
And again, he did this to give us a clean conscience from dead works. And what are dead works again? We covered this before. They are works or deeds that lead to death. And what works or deeds lead to death? John tells us, violations of God's law. Now that we have our consciences clean because of Yeshua, he has indeed made us clean, we are now free to serve the living God. Let's read our verse in Hebrews again so that we don't lose track of what we're talking about here. He says in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, what I want you to see is all of this was done so that we might serve the living God. He did this so that we might serve the living God. Think about it. We can now serve God. Yeshua did what he did so that we would be able to serve God. And that word in the Greek for serve is the same word that we began the chapter with where it said worship. You see, worship and service are one and the same. Let's look at the Greek word here. It says to serve, for hire, to serve, to minister, to render religious service, pay homage to worship. You see, we're like the priests, the servants of most, the Most High. And we are to offer ourselves, as Paul would say, as slaves in service to the one who created us, who died for us, the one who redeemed us. Listen to the words of John again as is recorded in his vision, revelation. It begins this way. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Not only is Messiah a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but I want to tell you something. We are too. We're priests. Are we Levites? No. We're priests in the order of Melchizedek, just as Messiah. That's why Revelation begins telling us we're priests to serve the living God. Remember this. This is the first thing it begins with. And when we get to the bottom, at the end of the chapter, it's going to tell us the same thing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 says, Without father, what does it take to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? What does it take? We covered it. Let's cover it again. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And again, in verse 15 of chapter 7, he says, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see something? We have been giving eternal life, an indestructible life that we might serve the living God. And for how long? Forever. Forever. 
Listen to what the last chapter tells us. The last chapter of Revelation, verse 3, it says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. There will be no more need of a light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these are the words of, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and prophets sent an angel to show his servant the things that must take place soon. You see what I'm saying? We're going to serve the living God forever. And how long is that? It's a long time. When does forever start? When does forever start? Well, I can tell you what the author of Hebrews says. He says it starts today. Hebrews chapter 3. But Messiah is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's when forever starts. Our service of God to God starts today if we hear his voice. You see, that's the other thing about true salvation. I've never seen anyone who was not reduced to a puddle of tears and wailing. And the fact is, my rabbi of blessed memory used to say, without tears, there is no salvation. But there is something else that happens at the point of becoming aware, at the point of having your conscience cleansed. And we find it in the words of Shaul when it happened to him. In chapter 22, verse 10, he says, What shall I do, Lord? You're immediately struck with, what shall I do? What can I do, Lord? And here's the problem that I alluded to above. The adversary wants you to think that we're not worthy to enter into the presence of God. We're not worthy to serve the living God. And let me tell you something, when we think that way, if you think that way, and we live our lives that way, we are in fact saying that what Yeshua did was in some way defective and unable to cleanse you. And let me say there's nothing defective in the plan of God. Messiah had no defect, and he leaves no defect in you. You are able to serve the living God. All you have to do is realize, become aware of all that he's done for you. Remember the magnitude of the love that he has for you. And there's something else you need to do. You need to step out. You need to remember that God gives you nothing to do that he doesn't equip you to do. You know, God gives us a shadow of the doubt that the adversary would like to plant in our hearts. He gives it to us in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. And I will help you speak and teach you what you should say. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? And here's what we learn. Is that God 
made us. He will empower us. But when we doubt his ability, he's not very happy with us. You see, it's not about you. It's about Yeshua. And it's about what his offering is able to secure for you. When you have doubts, when the adversary brings doubts into your mind, the answer is, the answer you should give him is, yes, you're right, I can't do it, but God can, and I serve a living God. You know, in the, Dan- in the commentary, I heard Daniel say that we should be fully functioning tabernacles, and how true that is, we should keep ourselves holy, but we should also be fully functioning priests serving the living God. The priests maintained the tabernacle. They made sure the light kept burning. They made sure the bread was continually before the Lord. They offered up prayer at the altar. And the point is this, serve God. When you hear about a task to be done, be the priest and go serve God. Don't come to me and say, well, I don't think I can do that. Because I know that you can't do that, but God can do it. And he can do it through you. If you can do it through me, he can do it through you, I guarantee you. We're about to become a larger community in another facility. And we need all the servants we can get. Amen? Let me say something else about serving. It's your worship. That's why it's translated both ways. And that's why Revelation chapter 22 said this, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him and they will see His face. Well, I didn't think He could do that. We're going to see the face of God. And our names will be on our forehead. Uh, his name will be on our foreheads. His servants will see His face. You want God's full attention upon you? Then get up out of the pew and go serve. There's nothing worse than a pew sitter. They stink. Just remember, it's not about you. It's about him working through you. And this is what you have to look forward to. He's talking about what we have to look forward to. A day when the work will be done and we'll be with him forever and ever. Singing praises and thanking him for all he's done. And this is your chance to serve the living God. And when your life is over, your opportunity is done as well. This is it. This is all the chance you get. So let's be busy while there's still time.